reflecting on consciousness. This is a, a kind of a subject that seems to have uh, become quite uh, important these days because even though we're experiencing consciousness, uh, we don't, uh, we, we want to kind of understand it or define it. So you hear some people saying that they, they equate consciousness with thinking or memory. So I've heard scientists or psychologists say that uh, animals don't have consciousness, which it seems ridiculous, <laughs> because uh, they assume animals uh, they don't think and they don't remember. But uh, in terms of this moment right now, this, this is consciousness, and we're just listening in this a pure consciousness before you start thinking. So, just uh, make a note of this. Consciousness is like this. And what I do is you know, I'm, I'm listening, I'm kind of just with this present moment, being present, being here now, and taking the word consciousness and and noting, making a mental note, consciousness is like this. So it's it's it's, uh, it's where thought arises and feeling and emotion. And that if we're unconscious, we don't feel and we don't think. But consciousness then is is like the field that allows thought, memory, emotion, feeling to appear and disappear. So consciousness isn't, uh, isn't personal. It's not, uh, to become personal, you, you have to uh, make a claim to it my consciousness, or I am conscious person, and that's just kind of making a claim, but there's just the awareness, this entrance into this noting the present, then at this moment, consciousness is like this. Then I begin to just notice this sound of silence, sense of just sustaining, uh, being able to rest in just a natural state of consciousness that is non-personal, not attached.
Now, noting this is, is like, like a informing or educating oneself the way it is. And, uh, because, you know, our conscious, we're, we're born, when, when we're born, then consciousness within this separate form starts operating. So like a newborn baby is conscious. But yet it has, it doesn't, it doesn't have a concept of itself as being English or male or female or anything like that. Those, those, uh, those are conditions that one acquires after birth. So consciousness is, in this realm is a conscious realm. So then we, we think of, say, universal consciousness, and then consciousness as it's used in the five khandhas, vijnana, rupa vedana, sanya, sankara, vijnana, and then consciousness, which is, is like sense consciousness. But then there, there's also, there's consciousness unattached or the uh, unlimited or um, deathless. So they have this in, in uh, two places in the Tripitaka they refer to Vinyanang Anidasanang Anantang Sapato Pabang a mouthful of words that point to this state of, of, of consciousness, natural, uh, this natural conscious, this reality. So well, I find it very useful to, to really, um, Note this, make this a very strong um, noting. Consciousness is like this. So that uh, if I start thinking about it, then uh, then I want to define it. Is there, is there an immortal consciousness? Or we want to make it into some kind of metaphysical doctrine? Or, or we want to deny it, saying that, uh, consciousness is anicca dukkha nata. It says so. Vinyanang, uh, anichang, vinyanang, anatta, and so forth. And we we want to uh, pin it down or define it either as impermanent and not self, or we want to maybe raise it up into some kind of uh, uh, thing that uh, that we hold to as a, as a kind of metaphysical positioning. But say, we're not interested in, in proclaiming the metaphysical doctrines or in just uh, limiting ourselves to maybe uh, an interpretation that we've acquired through this tradition, but trying to explore it in terms of experience. And this is where this uh, Lung Pacha's Ben Bajitang is 
<laughs> this is something you realize for yourself. But what I'm saying now is an exploration. It's not, not a, not, I'm not trying to uh, convince you or convert you to, to my, quote, my viewpoint, unquote. So when you, when you kind of, like consciousness is like this, it's it. Right now, the consciousness definitely conscious. And there's alertness, awareness. And then conditions arise and cease. Don't they say, if you just sustain yourself, sustain and rest in consciousness, You know, unattached, not not kind of trying to do anything, or or find anything, or become anything, but just relax and trust. Then things will rise. Suddenly, you, you'll be aware of of uh, a feeling, uh, a physical feeling, or a memory, or an emotion, or something will arise in that, and and so that memory becomes conscious or that sensation. And then it ceases, so that the consciousness is like a vehicle, uh, a natural, it's the way things are. Is consciousness something to do with the brain? Because we tend to think of it as uh, maybe... um, some kind of mental state that depends on uh, the brain. So we tend to think of consciousness as in the brain, and that's generally the attitude of the Western scientists. But more and more as you explore it with sati sampachanya, sati panya, then you you see the brain and and all the the nervous system, the whole uh, psycho-physical formation here, is it arises in this consciousness. You know, it's a, it's it's imbued with this consciousness. So that's why that's why we can be aware of the body, you know, just in reflecting on the posture. Just the sitting, the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, being aware of sitting as experienced now. It's not, not, you're not limited to, to something in the brain, is it? But the body is in the consciousness. Be aware of the whole body, of, of the experience of sitting. And then that consciousness isn't personal, so it's not like in my head, and then consciousness is in your head, and each each head here in the sala in the temple has has consciousness operating in it. So there's you know we we have our own special conscious experience going on, or is it 
is this consciousness the thing that, that unites us? Is it our oneness? I'm just questioning. We have different ways of looking at it. When we, when we let go of the differences, you know, that I am Ajahn Samedo and you are this person, that person, when those, when we let go of those identities and attachments, then consciousness is still functioning and it's pure. It has no quality of being personal or has no condition to it, like it's not male or female or It's not, uh, you can't, you can't put, put a, a, a quality into it. But it is like this. So then we, when we, when we begin to recognize that which, which binds us together, which is, uh, our common ground is consciousness, then we begin to recognize this is kind of universal, and you know, it's not just here in this uh, temple. But so maybe our meta practices, when we spread meta to a billion Chinese over in China, maybe it's not such just maybe it's not just kind of sentimentality and nice thought. Maybe there is power there. <laughs> no, I don't know myself. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm questioning. I'm not, I'm not going to limit myself to, to to a particular viewpoint that I've been conditioned by from my cultural background because most of that isn't very, you know, it's pretty flawed anyway. I don't find my cultural conditioning all that uh, dependable. I was uh, yesterday morning having breakfast with Kittisaro and Tanisara and, and uh, they brought over some croissants and then they brought me a tray of gifts and it was uh, some uh, chocolates from Marks and Spencer. So we were, you know, I took a, took a croissant and then, uh, then I gave the plate to, to them, and then we were talking and having a good Dharma discussion, and then suddenly I, I became aware, you know, just, uh, I would I, just the thought of uh, I'd like another croissant passed through my mind, and immediately Tennessee gave me the plate of So I was almost embarrassed. I thought, you know, God, she must think, you know, I must have been kind of, was I giving some kind of hint, you know? Was I kind of looking at the plate and... And then uh, time went by and, and then, then this, I'd like another one of those chocolates and she hands me the chocolate. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I asked her about it. I said, are you, are you reading my mind? <laughs> What's going on here? As soon as I think something, you seem to... to uh, I don't even have to make a hint or, you know, ask. She did it. She did. She just did it. She didn't have any. She wasn't like, um, you know, she had wasn't seen herself tuning in to me uh, on a personal level. But, but when you begin to reflect on as we as we break out of these limitations of uh, that we 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 have on a personal level, then there is a, a, a sensitivity and a kind of way of communicating that, that we don't always recognize or realize when we see ourselves through the very limited perceptions of personality view. So then, like the the weight in uh, like rupa weight in the sanya sankara, these are like the, the body and mental formations, like sankaras and sanya and and vedana. They they're arising, ceasing. So when we when we're mindful, then this mindfulness then allow it's like it's the the gate to this deathless vinyana. Or Lungtabu is immortal jitta. This is in Sri Lanka they don't like this. They won't publish his books because they they feel it's a heresy. They're talking about immortal jitta, but. But in terms of, of uh, you know, if you if you want to quarrel about orthodoxy, sometimes Theravada comes across as annihilationism. You, know, you get into this no soul, no God, no self kind of fixation, which is a attachment to a view. Or is the Buddhist teaching there there to be investigated and? Lord, not to be, we're not trying to confirm somebody's view about the poly, heat poly canon, but using the poly canon to explore our own experience. It's a different, different way of looking at it. At this moment, then, this is because if you, if you investigate this, a lot, you begin to really see the difference between of just pure consciousness and when self arises. It's very clear. It's not. It's not like fuzzy, kind of hazy. Is there self now or not? You know that kind of thing. It's it's a real clear um, knowing. 
So then, say, self arises. I suddenly I I start thinking about myself and my feelings and my memories, my past, my fears and desires, and and the whole world arises around the world of Rajan Tomatoes. It kind of takes off into into orbit, you know, and my feelings my views, my opinions. But then then I can you know, I can I can get caught into that world that view of me, the Ajahn Sumato world that that arises in, in the consciousness. But if I know that then I don't I no longer give it it's no longer my refuge being a person. I'm not taking refuge in in my personality or my views or opinions. So then then I can let go. So Ajahn Sumedho, the world of Ajahn Sumedho ends. And what remains when the world ends is consciousness still stills operating. Doesn't mean that Ajahn Sumedho dies and the world ends I'm unconscious. I remember, you know, talking about the end of the world, and and I remember somebody getting very frightened by this. And saying, the Buddhists are just practicing meditation to see the end of the world. They're really, they're they really they want to destroy the world. Uh, they they hate the world. They want to see it end. And so there's kind of a panic uh, reaction because uh, to us the world isn't you know is is seen in in the kind of a physical place, isn't it? This planet and it's the world of continents and oceans, North Pole and South Pole. But in, in Buddha Dhamma, the world is, is the world we create in consciousness. So that's why, you know, we can be living in different worlds. You know, we, the world of Ajahn Sumato is, is not going to be the same world as the world you create. But that world arises and ceases, and that which is aware of the world arising and ceasing transcends the world. So it's uh, so kutara rather than lokiya. When we're born, then in, in say physical birth, we we're co- consciousness within a this form, within a separate form. So this point of consciousness starts operating, and then of course we acquire the sense of ourselves 
through uh, through our parents, our mothers and fathers and cultural background. So we, you know, we acquire different values or sense of ourself as a person, and that's based on avicca, not dhamma, but on um, views and opinions or preferences that cultures have. And so that's why there can be endless problems around different cultural attitudes. You know, we can, we're living in a multicultural community like this, isn't it? We, it's easy to misunderstand each other because we're conditioned differently in ways of looking at ourselves or at the, the world around us. And so remember that cultural conditioning comes out of avicca or ignorance of Dhamma. So then what we're doing now, say, is informing consciousness with panya, which is, is a universal wisdom rather than cultural, some kind of cultural philosophy. Like, like Buddha Dhamma, when you look at it, even, you know, it's not a it's not a cultural teaching, not about Indian culture or civilization. It's about the natural laws that we live with, the, the rising and ceasing of phenomena, not the way things are, isn't it? That the Dhamma teachings are are, are just pointing to the the uh, way things are that is isn't isn't uh, bound into cultural limitations. So we're talking about anicca dukkanata, or that's not Indian philosophy or culture. These are things to be realized, you know, that you can, you're not operating from some kind of basic belief system that is cultural. The, the the, The Buddhist emphasis is on waking up you know, paying attention rather than than grasping some kind of doctrinal position that you start with. So, in, in uh, this is where Buddha Dhamma then has why many of us can relate to it because we're not we're not trying to become kind of Indians or kind of convert to some kind of religious doctrine that uh, that came out of India, but the Buddha uh, awakened to the way it is, to the, to the, to the natural law. So when we're exploring consciousness and, and then the, these, these teachings like five khandhas are are skillful means or expedient means in order to to explore and examine our experience. They aren't like you've got to believe in the five khandhas and believe that there's no self and and you can't believe in God anymore. To be a Buddhist, you've got to believe there's no God and they, 
I mean, we there are Buddhists that, that do have this kind of mentality. You know, want to make doctrinal positions about be, being Buddhists. But the, to me, the the uh, the teaching isn't based on on a on a doctrine, but on this uh, encouraging to awaken. So you're starting from here and now, awakened attention, rather than trying to prove uh, that Buddha that Buddha actually lived. You know, we can we can become uh, interested. Maybe somebody will say, maybe Buddha never really there was never really a Buddha. Maybe it was just uh, a myth. But it doesn't matter because we're not. We, we don't. We don't need to prove that uh, Gautama Buddha actually lived. It's not. It's not. That's not the issue. <laughs> we're not trying to to prove uh, historical fact, but to uh, recognize that what we're actually experiencing now is like this. So then, when we when we allow ourselves to just rest in conscious awareness, it's like this is this is a natural state. It's not a created one. You know, so it's not like a refined conditioning that we're after, where where you you know through. Uh, Moving from, say, coarser conditions to increasingly more refined ones, then you you, you experience a, a kind of bliss and tranquility that comes through refining conscious experience. <clears throat> but that's very dependent because the world, this conscious realm that we're a part of, is includes coarse and ref, uh, the coarse and the refined. You know, so it's not. This is not a refined realm that we're we're experiencing in terms of human bodies, human beings, planetary life. This is not a deva loka or a brahma loka, uh, which is more refined, much more. This is this is this is a coarse realm where we we have we we run the gamut from coarse to refined to that which is coarse to that which is refined. So we can experience Brahma states or Deva Loka type uh, mental experiences. But to take refuge in them is, is you know, we've got to deal with, with the, the realities of a physical body, which is, you know, which is uh, a, quite a coarse condition. In Deva realms, they don't have physical bodies. They have ethereal ones. We'd all like ethereal bodies, wouldn't we? You know, made out of ether rather than uh, 
all these slimy things that go on inside our bodies in the bones and pus and blood. Always kind of yucky conditions we have to live with. Having to defecate every day, things like this. It's, uh, David, David, I don't have to do things like that. Sometimes we, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to create this illusion where David does, because we, we don't like, you know, do these functions or we like privacy and don't want people to notice you know, because of the coarseness of this, uh, of this, the physical, physic, physical conditions that we're living with. But consciousness includes the coarse, uh, well, to, you know, from, gradations from the most coarse to the most refined. So then our refuge then is in this awareness rather than uh, in trying to hold to refine, in trying to just to try to sustain refined experiences through consciousness. As, as our refuge, because it, it, you, you can't do it. You can, you can, uh, you know, you, you can maybe sustain, learn through, through developing, uh, a skillful use of your mind. You can, you know, increase your sense, your experience of refinement. But inevitably, uh, you have to allow the course to manifest, to, to be a part of our conscious experience. So, by resting in this awareness, conscious awareness, then it's a natural state, and it's not—it's your true nature. Then it's, it's what's normal. This often is referred to as like coming home or our real home. And it's where, you know, it's the place to rest. It's like a home. The idea of a home is a place that you, where you belong, isn't it? You're no longer a foreigner or an alien. So, as you begin to recognize, it's like you feel a sense of of relief, of just being being home at last, of not being this strange stranger, this wanderer out in the wilderness.
then the world of Ajahn Sumedho can arise, and then it's like you're not home anymore, because Ajahn Sumedho is, uh, is an alien, a stranger. <laughs> and he's, he never feels quite at home anywhere, where it's self-consciousness. You know, am I, am I, am I American now, or am I British, or am I Thai? Where do I feel at home as Ajahn Tomato? You know, I don't even know what nationality I am anymore. It's a, or where I feel most at home. Do I feel, I don't feel, I feel more at home in England now than in America. I've lived here so long. And in Thailand, I feel at home because uh, it's the paradise for Buddhist monks, and they treat you so well. But that's but that's not me. But even that can be, you know. Still, I have to get visas, and and uh, you're always propfrung, and there's always this kind of separate <laughs> going on. And here in England, you know, no matter how. How you know how many years I hear I'm still to most people an American, and when I go back to, <laughs> to America, I say I don't know what I am. What you don't look like an American anymore. <laughs> you have kind of a funny accent. We don't know where where you're from. But if I, if, but that's the world of, uh, that's the world that is created, isn't it? When it drops away, what's left is, does it reflect our real home? Another thing to to notice is uh, that like compulsive feelings, like this sense of having to do something, or you know this I call it compulsive habits of having to do, having to get something you don't have, or attain something, or get rid of. You know, how, you've got to get rid of your defilements. So, in when you're when you're trusting in in our real home, then you you can have perspective on this this kind of conditioning of the emotions, this, this we're very kind of uh, competitive, goal-oriented societies that we come from. And that we're very programmed, very much programmed to always feel that there's something we've got to do. We've got to get something. We're lacking something. Uh, and we've got to find out what it is. We've got to get it. Or we've got to get rid of, of um, what we, you know, our weaknesses and faults, bad habits. 
<clears throat> so don't notice this is not this is a this is just a an attitude that arises and ceases the world it's the world the competitive world the uh, world of a self you know on a self level we've personal level is there's always you know we can always see ourselves in terms of you know what's wrong with us as a person as a person there's something you know there's so many flaws and inadequacies on a personal level there's no perfect personality that I've ever noticed personality is, is very, you know, it's all over the place. Uh, some of it's kind of all right and, you know, adequate. Others, some of it's really wacky. But there's no kind of personality that is uh, to take refuge in. You, you're never going to make yourself into a perfect personality. And so when you're judging yourself on, on, a, on a personal level, then, then there is, there seems to be so many problems, inadequacies and flaws and weaknesses. And that because you're, you might, you're comparing yourself maybe to some ideal, sense of an ideal person, you know, a noble uh, unselfish, uh, superlative type person personality. So, being aware of personality, that which is aware, is not personal. So you can be aware of of the personal as a mental object. And so these these personality conditions arise and cease. So you find yourself, you know, suddenly feeling very insecure or or acting very childish you know, because the conditions for that personal personality have arisen. Like going home to your parents. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know after, I remember when my parents were alive. Age 55, I went uh, home to stay with them for about three weeks because my they were very ill, very sick, and living three weeks with my parents. Here's Abbot of Amravati, 55-year-old Ajahn Tomato, and and then going home and living in the same little house with my mother and father brought up all kinds of of childish emotions, you know. <laughs> it's quite because the conditions were there, isn't that for that. Mothers and fathers bring up, you know, because you you were you were you know, you're born into through them and then your child your memories, your connections are from infancy onward. There are a lot of the, the conditions that arise in families are just it's just the conditions for feeling like a child again, even when you're a fifty five year old Buddhist monk, abbot of a monastery. And you can see 
my mother and father would easily go back into seeing me as their child. Rationally, they could say, yes, he's, he's, he's a, you know, middle-aged man. Then I was middle-aged. And they, rationally, they say, yes, but, you know, they still felt, I, you know, act sometimes like I was their child. And then you feel this rebelliousness, kind of adolescent kind of resentment <laughs> about, about being treated like a child. So, I mean, these, these are... So don't be surprised at, you know, some of the emotional states that arise in, in, when you throughout your life, even as you get old, when the karma ripens, then you're going to, these, this, then these conditions appear in consciousness. So don't despair if you, you know, if you find yourself at 50 years old feeling very childish or adolescent or whatever, but just be aware of that as a, you know, for what it is. It is what it is the conditions for that particular emotion are present, so then, then, it, so then it becomes conscious. So your refuge is in its awareness rather than trying to make yourself into a, an ideal, mature man or woman, uh, you know, responsible, mature, capable, and successful. Normal. And... <laughs> And all the rest of the, <laughs> these are the ideals. And, and when you're 55 years old, you know, you, you know you, here I'm, you know, I'm seen in terms of, I'm not looked at as, as a child. <laughs> Nobody, I'm the oldest person here. Not quite. <laughs> then, uh, then, uh, you see me in terms of maybe a, a father figure. Because an old man like me brings out your, the sense of, uh, you know, authority. I'm an authority figure, a, a patriarch, a father figure, a male figure, a grandfatherly figure to some of you. To be your grandfather. So it's interesting just to see how, you know, this, this, these things, when the conditions are, are there, uh, it, you know, maybe, you know, rationally saying, well, you're, he's, I'm, he's not my father. But then emotionally, you might feel like that, that, you know, you, you're acting to me like a father, because that's an emotional habit. And when the conditions for the kind of uh, male authority figures are present, then this is what you're feeling. Or like it's like this, you know. So there's nothing wrong about it. It's just noticing the way it is, so, and trusting your refuge is in the awareness, not in some idea that you you shouldn't 
project fatherly images onto me or you shouldn't feel uh, this disempowered by a male authority figure and things like this uh, and, and judging it on that level but but trust in it. If whatever you feel if you feel disempowered by me then that's that's the way that's just recognize that's the, the condition that has arisen rather than make it into a problem by either blaming me or blaming yourself. Because then you're back into the, to the, the world you're creating, your personal world, and, and believing in that as your reality. I noticed, uh, you know, how uh, how strong, you know, I used to get really angry when wi- when women would get bossy. So when when any woman would show any kind of bossiness, I I just feel this rage. And so I wondered where, you know, why why I'd get so upset. When, when women, you know, even a, a tone of voice or a kind of bossy attitude, why well, I could get so enraged over that. And I could see it was a, you know, it's a, a kind of like at the point of my, when I was a boy, trying to get away from my mother. And the mother knows best. Mother knows what's good for her little boy, and I. You know. <laughs> so, so I, I've never resolved that. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, once I could see it, I could let it go, but it was. You know, quite surprising now the the rage one could feel, like a a little boy trying to to break out of the that that relationship with his mother. You know that kind, of, you know, kind of fighting against mother. So when the conditions would arise, you know, then that. You know, if that's never been fully resolved yet, then 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 one feels these kind of the conditions for that that rage are present. Then this is what you're feeling. It's through this awareness of it that you resolve it. You know, as you as you understand it and and see it in terms of what it is, then you can what we call resolve it or let it go, so that you. You're not just stuck with the, with the same old reaction all the time.
Well, that's what I encourage during this retreat to to uh, you know, not to resist what what arises in your consciousness. You know, not, not trying to control and and uh, manipulate our mental states all the time. Allow, allow whatever, you know, welcome whatever does arise during this retreat. If it's boredom or aversion or greed or lust or, or doubt, resentment, fear, whatever, this, this is a sense of welcoming, uh, allowing that which has arisen, the world that has arisen, to allow it to, to be what it is. And then it, all worlds cease, you know, their natures to cease, so that you're allowing them to be what they are. If they arise, they cease. So that kind of patient acceptance, if the world is a miserable, nasty world, it's still allow it to be what it is, you know, to don't try to make it cease. Be patient, allow it to be, be what it is, a willingness to allow misery to be miserable. And in that attitude then, then, then you can uh, see the end of misery. Misery is not ultimate reality. <laughs> Sometimes it seems like it. there's no way out of it. <laughs> but that's just another, that's another feeling, isn't it? When you think, oh, there's no way out. I'll be miserable forever. That's, that's another condition you're creating. within a separate form, so this point of consciousness starts operating. And then, of course, we acquire the sense of ourselves through, uh, through our, parents, our mothers and fathers and cultural background. So we, you know, we acquire different values or sense of ourself as a person. And that's based on Abhicha, not Dhamma, but on um, views and opinions or preferences that cultures have. And so that's why there can be endless problems around different cultural attitudes. You know, we can... We're living in a multicultural community like this, isn't it? We easy to misunderstand each other because we're conditioned differently in ways of looking at ourselves or at the, the world around us. And so remember that cultural conditioning comes out of abhicha or ignorance of Dhamma. So then what we're doing now, say, is informing consciousness with panya, with 
which is is a universal wisdom rather than cultural some kind of cultural philosophy like like buddha dhamma when you look at it even you know it's not a it's not a cultural teaching not about indian culture or civilization it's about the natural laws that we live with the the rising and ceasing of phenomena not the way things are isn't it the dhamma teachings are are just pointing to the the uh, way things are that is isn't isn't uh, bound into cultural limitation so we're talking about anicca dukkanata or that's not indian philosophy or culture that these are things to be re- realized you know that you can you're not operating from some kind of basic belief system that is cultural the the basic the the buddhist emphasis is on waking up you know paying attention rather than than grasping some kind of doctrinal position that you start with so in, in uh, this is where buddha dhamma then has why many of us can relate because we're not we're not trying to become kind of indians or kind of convert to some kind of religious doctrine that uh, that came out of india but the buddha uh, awakened to the way it is to the to the to the natural law so when we're exploring consciousness and and then the these these teachings like five khandas are are skillful means or expedient means in order to to explore and examine our experience they aren't like you've got to believe in the five khandas and believe that there's no self and and you can't believe in god anymore to be a buddhist you've got to believe there's no god and they I mean, we there are Buddhists that that do have this kind of mentality. You know, want to make doctrinal positions about be, being Buddhists. But the, to me, the the uh, the teaching isn't based on on a on a doctrine, but on this uh, encouraging to awaken so you're starting from here and now awakened attention rather than trying to prove uh, that buddha that buddha actually lived you now we can we can become uh, interested maybe somebody will say maybe buddha never really there was never really a buddha maybe it was just a uh, a myth but it doesn't matter because we're not we don't we don't need to prove that the gotama buddha actually lived it's not it's not but not the issue <laughs> we're not trying to to prove uh, historical facts 
but to uh, recognize that what we're actually experiencing now is like this. So then, when we when we allow ourselves to just rest in conscious awareness, it's like this is this is a natural state. It's not a created one. You know, it's, it's not like a refined conditioning that we're after, where where you you know through. Uh, Moving from, say, coarser conditions to increasingly more refined ones, then you you, you experience a, a kind of bliss and tranquility that comes through refining conscious experience. <clears throat> but that's very dependent because the world, this conscious realm that we're part of, is includes coarse and ref, the coarse and the refined. You know, so it's not. This is not a refined realm that we're that we're experiencing in terms of human bodies, human beings, planetary life. This is not a deva loka or a brahma loka, uh, which is more refined, much more. This is this is this is a coarse realm where we we have we we run the gamut from coarse to refined to that which is coarse to that which is refined. So we can experience Brahma states or Deva Loka type uh, mental experiences. But to take refuge in them is, it's, you know, we've got to deal with, with the, the realities of a physical body, which is you know, which is uh, a quite a coarse condition. In deva realms, they don't have physical bodies; they have ethereal ones. So we'd all like ethereal bodies, wouldn't we? You know, made out of ether rather than uh, all these slimy things that go on inside our bodies in the bones and pus and blood always kind of yucky conditions we have to live with having to defecate every day things like this it's, uh, David Davidas don't have to do things like that Sometimes we, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to create this illusion where David does, because you know, we we don't like you know, do these functions or we like privacy. We don't want people to notice you know, because of the coarseness of this uh, of this the physical physic, physical conditions that we're living with. But consciousness includes the coarse as well. To you know from gradations from the most coarse to the most refined. So then our refuge then is in this awareness rather than 
uh, in trying to hold to refine, in trying to just to try to sustain refined experiences through consciousness as as our refuge, because it, you, you can't do it. You can you can uh, you know you you can maybe sustain, learn through through developing. Uh, a skillful use of your mind, you can, you know, increase your sense, your experience of refinement. But inevitably, uh, you have to allow the course to manifest, to to be a part of our conscious experience. So, by resting in this awareness, Conscious awareness, then it's a natural state, and it's not. It's your true nature, then. It's, it's what's normal. It's oftentimes referred to as like coming home or our real home. And it's where, you know, it's the place to rest. It's like a home. The idea of a home is a place that you, where you belong, isn't it? You're no longer a foreigner or an alien. So, as you begin to recognize, it's just like you feel a sense of of relief, of just being being home at last, of not being this strange stranger, this wanderer out in the wilderness. Then the world of Ajahn Sumedho can arise, and then it's like you're not home anymore because Ajahn Sumedho is a, is an alien, a stranger. <laughs> and he's, he never feels quite at home anywhere. Self consciousness. You know, am I am I am I American now, or am I British, or am I Thai? Where do I feel at home as Ajahn Tomato? You know, I don't even know what nationality I am anymore. It's a, or where I feel most at home. Do I feel, I don't feel, I feel more at home in England now than in America. Because I've lived here so long. And in Thailand I feel at home because uh, it's the paradise for Buddhist monks. And they treat you so well, 
but that's but that's not me. But even that can be, you know. Still, I have to get visas, and and uh, you're always pop wrong and there's always this kind of separate <laughs> going on. And here in England, you know, no matter how how you know how many years I'm here, I'm still to most people an American. And when I go back to America, I say. I don't know what I am. What you don't look like an American anymore. <laughs> you developed kind of a funny accent. We don't know where where you're from. But if I, if but that's the world of uh, that's the world that is created, isn't it? When it drops away, what left is. Uh, that reflect our real home. <laughs>